0: Hi everybody, Cheryl Atkinson here. Welcome to another edition of the Cheryl Atkison Podcast on JustThenews.com. I hope you will pre-order my new book, Slanted How the News Media Taught Us to Love Censorship and Hate Journalism. Today, together in this podcast, we're gonna take a deep dive into the sordid recent history of fake news and how it's been weaponized by propagandists in the media. Today I'm going to run down some history of the phrase fake news, the phenomenon to fight fake news, the way propagandists have used it for sometimes the opposite of what it seems to be. I call it the brave new world of fake news and chilling efforts to censor it. I have uh, written about this and spoken about it in my TEDx talks and in my book, The Smear. But I think it's worth going over again as we approach the 2020 election and really things are just going at a fever pitch in terms of propaganda and censorship and supposed fake news. So let's talk about what happened right after Donald Trump's shocking victory in 2016. If you can take yourself back to that time, really forces on both the left and the right were desperately trying to process what had just happened and how. Because the most powerful and well-funded propagandists in politics, liberals, conservatives, the media, they'd all been soundly defeated by the Trump victory, made into fools. They'd kind of been schooled by a political amateur so now, after Trump's victory, they found themselves on a new mission to deconstruct what went wrong, to find new relevance, and to win back their power. A reminder that both political parties have long-standing power webs. And by that, I mean, I'll just give the short version. There are power brokers who deal in data, money contributions to political campaigns, And through these networks, certain people become very powerful by delivering on promises to corporations and special interests that certain laws and hearings will happen or won't happen based on what these powerful interests want if they contribute the right amount of money to the right political candidates or campaigns. And a lot of times these interests contribute to both because they have to have a way to get to the top uh, to speak to or get an audience with or get their views heard by whoever happens to be in power. And when Donald Trump came into office, this blew up the network on both sides, the Republican side too. The people who had told corporations and other special interests that they had to pay up to have influence suddenly had nobody to influence. They didn't necessarily have an ear with this president because he hadn't come up the same way. He hadn't used their money. Remember. Hillary Clinton spent a lot more money than Donald Trump in the 2016 campaign. And even the Koch brothers, the libertarian slash conservative money people that normally weigh in a lot, last time I checked, did not contribute to Donald Trump in 2016. And this is, in my view, probably the reason why, what I've described. So it's in this context, with both sides trying to figure out how to regroup after a Trump victory, that the term fake news emerges at the forefront of nearly every post-election political and news discussion now i've written about smears and professional smears and the groups responsible and how they do it but really until now most successful smears relied heavily on at least a grain of truth a kernel of fact that could be taken from somebody's past manipulated exaggerated spun into something larger and more destructive but In this new atmosphere, in the fake news business, all that a smear artist needs are really a good story, a Facebook account, and maybe a website that looks something like an actual news source. Transactional journalism, as I call it, and its reliance on the services of the traditional news media, not even really required as much as they used to be in the past. I mean, it used to be deals were made so that reporters would publish certain things. You know, maybe they were given some information, given a scoop, um, or they would promise to report something on a certain timeline in a certain way. Well, really, you don't even need that so much anymore. Fictitious stories and falsehoods can go viral through social media, on the Internet, without even the real news middleman. And so this is the context for what became the new battleground in the smear wars. But before these soldiers and generals in this new war could don their armor and get busy, they already began fighting to control the definition of what exactly constituted fake news. Let me again take you back. Before September of 2016, we weren't talking about fake news. If you do a Google search, you'll see that this is correct. There was almost no public discussion about it until it was put on our plate, until propagandists wanted us to think about it in a way they wanted us to think about it. Now, its definition came to depend on where you sit politically. And it's not as if there's a supreme dictionary authority that gets to decide how to define fake news for everybody, though a lot of people have tried. From the start, liberals, who were first to heavily promote the phrase fake news, meant it to reference conservative misinformation and right-wing websites, and there was certainly plenty of that in 2016. Agence France-Presse, AFP, simply declared matter-of-factly that it was the right-wing that was guilty of fake news and that Obama had been plagued by eight years of what they called, quote, false scandals over his place of birth that have forced him to play media critic-in-chief. Boy, that's really going back in time to think about Obama as the media critic-in-chief rather than Trump. Anyway, um, some liberals were also calling fake news demonstrably false narratives, like reports that Hillary Clinton was seriously ill, about to be indicted by the FBI, using a body double, things like that. Then Trump and conservatives counterpunched, and they quickly came up with their own idea of fake news, as committed, they said, by the mainstream media and left-wing websites, and there was plenty of that too. Let's take Trump's supposed links to Russia President Vladimir Putin and white supremacists to name a couple of obvious ones. Suffice it to say that those accused of producing or being fake news tend to define it in terms that exclude themselves and point to the other guys, came to be sort of two fingers pointing at each other, and to complicate things we have to also consider the possibility that double agents are generating fake news, sometimes about themselves, to justify the movement to crack down on supposedly fake news. And there's evidence of such twisted plots. You have to think beyond just one layer sometimes. Shortly after the election, and shortly before the election in 2016, the Southern Poverty Law Center reported an uptick in hate-related crimes, which went along with this theme that... um Trump was racist and his supporters were racist. There were dozens of shocking news accounts of pro-Trump racist and Islamophobic violence. For example, in New York City, there was that story about an 18-year-old Muslim American woman who was mercilessly harassed by Trump supporters, who, she said, tried to steal her hijab veil on the subway. And there were news reports about Trump supporters spray-painting Trump rules and black bitch on an African-American woman's car and the word Trump next to a Nazi swastika on a storefront window. There were news reports you may recall about a black church in Mississippi that was burned and spray painted with the words vote Trump. And of course many in the press blamed and harangued Trump for these incidents and asked why won't you condemn what your supporters are doing. The left-wing propaganda site Daily Coast published an actual headline that read Trump empowers white supremacists to kill as a matter of policy then remains silent about it. Trump did respond to the outcry that constantly came at him over these things by publicly imploring those committing the hateful acts to as he said stop it. But maybe you also recall, maybe not because it didn't get as much coverage, but many of the hate crimes were soon revealed to be fake news. Staged by Trump opponents to look as though they'd been committed by his supporters. For example, the Muslim American victim in the subway was ultimately arrested for making up the account, according to New York City police. An African American man was arrested in the case of the spray painted racist messages in Philadelphia. Another black man was arrested and charged with defacing and setting fire to that Mississippi church I talked about. He was a member of the congregation. And when those arrests were made, the press didn't blame or harangue Clinton or Obama. They pretty much only went after Trump when the accusations were first reported. The press didn't ask Clinton or Obama to apologize for the violent acts and false accusations as they had done to Trump, nor does the media typically offer its own apologies or corrections for the initial stories that unequivocally blame Trump supporters for the crimes, even when there's no evidence and when it turns out to be the opposite. So liberals and conservatives pretty much declared war on one another in the media over fake news in this 2016 time period. And conservative websites and social media began exploding with their own outrage, asking things like, how can the New York Times credibly report on fake news after its own front page expose about Trump's mistreatment of women during the campaign when the victims in the article later defended Trump and said that the New York Times took their words out of context. Conservatives were asking, where's the outrage over the media's mantra that Trump had no electoral path to victory and other false narratives that were designed on the front end to try to defeat him? What about the major newspaper that falsely reported on election night that Trump had lost Michigan when he actually won? You may remember on January twentieth, two 2017, Time magazine seemed to prove the point of conservatives when one of its reporters, Zeke Miller, erroneously reported that incoming President Trump had removed the bus statue of Martin Luther King from the Oval Office. Now, that claim, which was untrue, was born of a bias that used to be really verboten and responsible journalism. Miller, the reporter, later explained that The reason he reported what he did is he looked around, didn't see the bust in the office, and then, without verifying his suspicions or asking about them, he just tweeted out the false information that the bust was gone. And he reported this story to the entire national press pool, meaning it was widely circulated, went around the world, in fact, on social media in a very short period of time. The White House responded by quickly posting a photo on social media showing the bust was still very much in the Oval Office, and it was revealed that Miller hadn't even followed the most basic tenets that every college journalism student is taught, check your facts. I mean, not long ago, such an amateur error would have excluded the offending reporter from work at any reputable news publication, but today it's just become a routine part of the business. And when I looked into this, there was no evidence that time had taken any punitive actions against the reporter for doing this, and he was still listed when I looked as... Working for time. Again, maybe you say, well, an honest mistake, but the problem is these are the sorts of mistakes that we're taught on day one not to make. They're so easily avoided. It's not even something that should have been an easy, honest mistake because there are basic practices to follow. You don't just send out information as a news organization um, in an official story to the entire world press corps, something that you haven't bothered to check without telling people you haven't bothered to check it. Well, anyway, when conservatives started presenting these gross examples as evidence of fake news, at least their definition of fake news, liberal commentators started defending the act, saying these honest mistakes were far less serious than people knowingly generating fake news, like conservatives. You know, and I think you could argue either way, because mistakes at real news organizations... I think tend to be more harmful because readers are more likely to believe them than the off-brand sites that generate completely fake news. In, in any event, both sides today continue to define fake news in a way that lends sympathy to their interests. After a short break, I am going to talk about the roots of fake news going back much further than 2016. Maybe it wasn't always called fake news, but it's been around a long time, and there are some interesting points to make. Stay with me. Be right back. We're back. And I said we were going to talk about the roots of fake news going earlier back than 2016 and the campaign when it became such a discussion put on our plate in its modern context. But I interviewed John Johnson, who wrote a book called Every Data – the misinformation hidden in little data you consume every day. And John Johnson divided fake news into five categories when we spoke. Number one, news that's entirely false. That's obvious, right? Number two, news that's slanted and or biased. Number three, pure propaganda. Four, stories that misinterpret or misuse data. And five, imprecise and sloppy reporting. Now, under those definitions... Fake news has really been embedded in our culture for decades. Long before the Internet, newspaper magnets hyped stories for circulation, sometimes in secret partnership with the government. As noted in the Asia-Pacific Journal in an article, Joseph Pulitzer of the New York World and St. Louis Post-Dispatch and William Randolph Hearst of the New York Journal and San Francisco Examiner competed for readers in the late 1890s with what the Asia-Pacific Journal called, quote, Exposes, stunts, comics, sports coverage, women's features, and exciting accounts of foreign conflicts. Asia Pacific Journal goes on to report they believe that war, especially the way they reported it, sold papers. Some critics accused these newspapers of doing the bidding of President William McKinley to shape popular perceptions and pump up sentiment for a U.S. declaration of war against Spain. Then let's go to the mid-20th century. You remember the supermarket rags? Actually, some are still for sale in the supermarket. They gave populist appeal to blatantly fake news with front-page images of aliens abducting and impregnating, unsuspecting, usually large-breasted earthling women. The National Enquirer published its first issue as a sensational tabloid back in 1953. Weekly World News had headlines like Garden of Eden found. U.S. grows trees from seeds. (laughs) From the globe, bush on cocaine in the White House. Now, the tabloids became the clickbait of the pre-internet era and developed a devoted following. I used to read these things, the headlines anyway, in the grocery store lines. And really, I just chuckled at them, but they were interesting. I mean, presumably most readers believed none of what they read in these rags. Certainly, a few believed... All of it, but not most people. And quite frankly, every once in a great while, the tabloids broke true news. In 1987, only the Enquirer had the moxie to put a tail on Democratic presidential candidate Gary Hart, unearthing his affair, you may recall, with model Donna Rice, complete with a photo of Rice sitting on Hart's lap aboard his yacht called Monkey Business, and Hart dropped out of the race. Over the years, slandered celebrities complain about the tabloids, and some sue, but really nobody ever spoke seriously of curating them, removing them from the store shelves, or censoring them from public view, or telling you not to believe them. In the 1990s, news organizations began to exploit the new technology of email and blogs and websites to expand their audiences, and viewers increasingly turned to online sources for their entertainment and information. And, of course, this brought a social media revolution. Most notably, let's look at Facebook, Twitter, and YouTube. As we've seen, they have provided the means by which smears can be accomplished with unprecedented speed, breadth, and deadly precision. A rumor that would have circulated among a relative few can now develop a global following. Technological tricks can be used to alter images and create new false realities to fool the most discriminating eye. On December 14th, 2012, a shooter barged into Sandy Hook Elementary School in Newtown, Connecticut, and murdered 20 children and six school employees. A bunch of blogs and videos and social media sites began circulating conspiracy theories insisting that the whole thing was staged by actors and that it was a hoax drummed up by the government and the supposedly dead children have since, they say, shown up as a group disguised, but very much alive and well at White House events and football halftime shows. Maybe you've seen some of that stuff circulating on the internet. When false information like that crosses over from these shadowy corners of the internet to a place where they're believed by a large swath of the American public, it's officially fake news, although, As I've mentioned, it wasn't really called that until 2016. Sometimes fake news is picked up and reported seriously in the domain of once-respected straight news outlets. How does that happen? Well, the news organizations might be guilty of not checking their facts carefully enough, or maybe they're in a rush to beat the competition. Maybe they're advancing an agenda. Long before 2016, you can find countless blatant examples of damaging misinformation making its way to the mainstream through reckless or malicious disregard for the truth. Let's talk about a couple of them. In 1996, there was a news media frenzy that wrongly linked security guard Richard Jewell to the bombing of Centennial Olympic Park in Atlanta. In fact, Jewell was actually a hero, spotting an unattended backpack and moving people away from it before the bomb inside exploded. The movie about that that came out in the last year or two, I think it was called Jewel. Really, really, I think, good, well-done movie. Also in 1996, I was able to call out a shocking incident of government-generated fake news. It happened after I broke the story on the CBS Evening News that Chinese spies had obtained design plans to our most advanced nuclear warhead called the W88. I knew from the best sources when I reported about the Chinese spying the U.S. officials, try as they might, had not identified a suspect in the case. But as soon as my story ignited a global scandal, the government suddenly offered up the name of the supposed spy, a Taiwan-born scientist named Wen Ho Lee, who worked at the U.S. Los Alamos National Laboratory. Well, government officials leaked Lee's name to national news media, including me as the reporter who'd broken the original story. And other reporters who got this name leaked to them widely reported that Lee was likely the spy. I took a far more circumspect approach because my inside sources, who were trusted and had provided accurate information in the past, were very firm on the point that Lee was not really a credible suspect. They told me that the Clinton administration had been embarrassed by the Chinese theft and needed to make it seem as if the culprit had been caught. The FBI claimed Lee, the suspect, failed a lie detector test and they had their man, but it wasn't true. I was later able to exclusively report that the FBI had lied about Lee's polygraph, which he'd actually passed with flying colors. In the end, Lee was never charged with spying and he sued the federal government for unlawfully leaking his name to news organizations. And ultimately, the government and several news organizations paid Lee a settlement. He had been held in prison in solitary confinement under this false information provided by the FBI. The settlement was paid by The Washington Post for reporting by Walter Pincus, The New York Times for reporting by James Risen, The Los Angeles Times for reporting by Bob Drogan, The Associated Press for reporting by Joseph Hebert or Hebert, not sure how to say his last name, and ABC for reporting by Pierre Thomas. The news outlet said their reporters did nothing wrong but that they agreed to pay the settlement so they wouldn't have to disclose the names of the government sources who had leaked Lee's name. Now, why, if somebody has improperly or wrongly leaked a name for a story that turned out to be false, you as a news organization? still have to protect that name? I think that's sort of a question and a matter that you could debate. If someone's given you false information, if someone has caused you to report something that's not true, do you owe the source confidentiality? Let's move on. There's fake news on September 11th, 2001, in the confusion after the terrorist attacks. CBS News' Jim Stewart erroneously reported that The doomed hijacked Flight 93 went down, as he said, quote, in the vicinity of Camp David, the presidential retreat, but it really crashed nowhere near there. It was an honest mistake based on bad information he must have gotten or a hastily drawn conclusion. Now, you know about this one in 2004, CBS News anchor Dan Rather got caught in a big case of fake news. They didn't call it that back then but using forged documents for a 60 Minutes 2 report disparaging President George W. Bush's Vietnam-era military service. Prior to the segment airing, by the way, a CBS manager had shown me the documents that this report was relying on, not realizing they were forgeries and telling me that I might be assigned to do a big follow-up story for the evening news if the 60 Minutes 2 story made a big splash. Well, I immediately flagged the material as suspicious. I saw that the documents they showed me dated 1973 were clearly computer generated rather than typed with a 1970s era typewriter. I happened to come up under the 1970s instruction with a Selectric typewriter from IBM. And I know what computers looked like at the time, even the most advanced computers, they didn't look like this. And other red flags were that these documents were purportedly signed by a lieutenant colonel that when I asked about him I was told well he's now deceased and the format and language in these documents deviated from military documents that I'd reviewed in the past they just didn't look right they didn't look the same the terminology the format and I refused to touch the story ultimately the documents were exposed as fakes and Dan Rather and several producers lost their jobs over this Fake news controversy. I got inadvertently wrapped up in another fake news story in 2008 when Hillary Clinton, as a presidential candidate, was repeatedly quoted uncritically in the press describing how she'd bravely dodged sniper fire on a trip to war-torn Bosnia 12 years earlier when she was first lady. And making these statements, she was apparently trying to distinguish herself as more battle-ready than her opponent, Barack Obama, But I had accompanied Clinton on the trip to Bosnia as a reporter 12 years earlier in 1996, and I knew there had been no sniper fire. The events that Hillary Clinton was describing were wholly fabricated. On March 24th, 2008, I showed the video, the original video from the Bosnia trip in a story for the CBS Evening News. After I exposed the fact that there was no sniper fire, Uh, Clinton apologized and explained that she repeatedly misremembered the events because she had been, in her words, overtired. The thing I wondered about is, there were a lot of other reporters on that Bosnia trip who knew that Clinton's story was fake, that we had not been fired at by snipers, but they stayed silent. I wondered why. On April 23, 2013, more fake news. The Associated Press reported breaking news on its Twitter account, It said two explosions in the White House and Barack Obama is injured. That led to instantaneous panic and a major Wall Street reaction. Within just a couple of minutes, the S&P 500 stock index lost more than $136 billion. But it turns out the report was all a hoax. AP's Twitter account had been hacked. But one of the most far-reaching and insidious fake news stories in recent times, I think, surrounds... The police shooting death of suspect Michael Brown, the African-American man in Ferguson, Missouri, that was on August 9th, 2014. The media, maybe this is the first time I noticed this happening in such a widespread way, but it immediately kind of got on board with one version of events without knowing the facts yet. The media widely reported what turned out to be bogus witness accounts of Brown getting shot while supposedly holding up his hands in surrender. And the reportedly unjustified nature of this police shooting sparked all those violent riots. They stoked the Black Lives Matter movement, created this protest gesture known as Hands Up, Don't Shoot, which people still use today, not understanding that never happened. All of this was followed by a rash of black men ambushing and murdering police officers around the nation in this charged atmosphere. But what a lot of people still don't know today, I think, was that in 2015, the Department of Justice under Obama, led by Attorney General Eric Holder, reversed its initial claims and exonerated the white Ferguson police officer who had shot at Michael Brown. The Department of Justice determined that those witnesses who claimed that Brown's hands were raised when he was shot, well, they weren't telling the truth. But due to the original widespread misreporting of the fake news, those serious misconceptions often persist to this day. Also in 2015, there was fake news during riots in Baltimore, kind of an outgrowth of the Ferguson misreporting. People were tweeting and retweeting photographs purporting to show looted and destroyed storefronts in Baltimore, but it turns out at least some of the images were recycled from entirely unrelated events. One photo posted as if it were showing a trash Kentucky Fried Chicken restaurant in Baltimore turned out to be actually a picture from a bombed out restaurant in Pakistan. In 2014, November, you probably do remember this fake news story. Rolling Stone's Sabrina Rubin Erdely reported on that sensational case of a fraternity gang rape which turned out to be not only questionable but so unsubstantiated that Rolling Stone retracted the article and ultimately a jury found early guilty of malice in a defamation lawsuit. Let's fast forward to December 7th, 2016, another fake news use of a photo in a major news event. NBC's Today reported on the mistrial of a North Charleston, South Carolina police officer who would shot a black suspect. Now, as the news host was telling viewers that Charleston's mayor was appealing for calm, NBC was showing a still photo of an angry mob of demonstrators making it appear as though the city was on the verge of riots. But it turned out that the provocative photograph NBC used wasn't taken after the mistrial and the scene wasn't anywhere near Charleston. It was a picture of people protesting after an unrelated incident a year before in Baltimore. Who noticed the errors? It wasn't NBC. It was viewers who noticed the problem and took to social media. One of them wrote, Wow, today's show. Hire some fact-checkers. Pretty lame to share Baltimore 2015 photo in today's story about Charleston mistrial. Another one wrote, What's up with this Today Show? Why use a picture of Baltimore when reporting on Charleston's situation? Poor reporting. So, Amid incidents like these, there was a lot of mistrust of the news brewing, and NBC News anchor Brian Williams added to all of it by admitting that a war story that he'd told for 12 years was fake. He'd claimed that he was in a helicopter in 2003 that was hit by enemy fire over Iraq, but the truth turns out to be no missile ever hit his chopper, and that fabrication was revealed in 2015 by stars and stripes based on accounts of soldiers who were there. Now, based on this, NBC removed Williams from the anchor chair, and he apologized for telling the tale. But I think for a lot of viewers, they're thinking, okay, there's irrefutable proof of willful dishonesty at the highest levels in the media. If NBC's top newsman would make up such stories, how can we rely on the news to be true? And meantime, after his suspension, Williams was reinstated in the anchor chair at MSNBC, where he later criticized the Trump team for spreading fake news. Then there are other practices that some define as fake news. One of them is common misapplication of the phrase anti-immigrant to Trump and his policies. And using the term, partisans and many reporters, they conflate legal immigrants with illegal immigrants as if they're one and the same. To me, it's kind of like saying a burglar is the same thing as an invited visitor to your home. It's simply not true. Whether you like Trump or not, I think it's difficult to logically make the case that he is anti-immigrant. He's repeatedly stated he's pro-immigration. He married two immigrants, his current wife and his ex-wife. He has children who are the children of immigrants. There's similar common misuse of other derogatory terms against Trump. His enemies have tried to portray him as anti-Semitic, despite the fact that his daughter is a converted Orthodox Jew, and that as president, Trump immediately cultivated a friendlier relationship with Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu than the Obama administration had ever had. And lastly, Trump's temporary immigration moratorium was mistakenly described far and wide as a Muslim ban, as if all Muslims were banned, despite the fact that most of the world's Muslims were unaffected, And the countries that it applied to were first identified under the Obama administration. And of course, most obviously of all, millions of Muslims are still very much welcome and living in the United States. There was no Muslim ban. A few years back, responsible news reporters wouldn't give themselves license to use these pejorative and challenged terms to describe a politician's positions. If we use the terms, we would attribute them to somebody who was using them, not attributing them as if they were our own, since they're not accurate. But under today's loosened definition of what's become acceptable, it seems like almost anything goes. So I hope you found this discussion about where we are today and how we got here as we barrel into the 2020 election interesting. I hope you will go right now to wherever you like to order books and pre-order a copy of my new book, Slanted, How the News Media Taught Us to Love Censorship and Hate Journalism. As a former CNN insider for the book, I spoke to other CNNers, some who spoke anonymously and others who agreed to be named, about CNN's devolution, as well as CNN's role in the death of the news as we once knew it. No other book that I know of includes this sort of candid dissection of an analysis about CNN from CNN and other journalism insiders. One reason to order Slanted, and I hope you'll do that today. Also subscribe to the Cheryl Ackeson podcast and the other Just the News podcasts. And I have the podcast Full Measure After Hours affiliated with my Sunday TV program. I hope you'll subscribe to that as well. Do your own research, make up your own mind, think for yourself.